I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. Today's episode is with Mike Cocking. Mike is a partner at the golf design firm of Ogilvy, Cocking, and Mead OCM. Uh, they are out of Australia, and uh, I think they're one of the rising names in American golf architecture as well as worldwide golf architecture. They've been a big name down in Australia for years, and uh, the last couple of years, I've seen them really um, build their profile here in America with a number of uh, new designs on the way. And I guess the biggest project of name is their redesign of Medina number three. So I wanted to talk with Mike a little bit about what they had going on there, as well as just a general catch up. Uh, he hasn't been on the pod for six years, so it was uh, it was fun to chop it up with Mike, uh, talk all things design. And uh, yeah, so... Without further ado, here is Mike Cocking. You want to hear something crazy just with in regards to time. Uh, your last appearance on this podcast was uh, over five years ago. Wow. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that actually the other day, last time I might have been on. I had no idea it was five years, but yeah. Maybe it's closer to six than five, which which is it's scary, scary stuff. You know, I like remember that vividly that conversation so um i wanted to uh i wanted to start off uh you worked at shady oaks legendary hangout of of ben hogan Mm -hmm. you guys did the renovation there what's your favorite ben hogan story that you learned from working there um there was one good one where mike wright the uh so he's the director of golf so hogan basically got him the job he was a 23 year old uh, for whatever reason he took a shine to uh, Hogan took a shine to to Mike and he actually loaned him his jacket um his like his sports coat for the interview and you know I mean Hogan was unofficially the president really of of the club <clears throat> not entitled but he basically told the club you're going to hire this guy so he knew him he became friends with him and his wife um he was a pallbearer at his funeral and when he died um Hogan left him like a thousand clubs 1200 clubs um, which are still scattered around the, the the pro shop and the clubhouse. And, you know, I was lucky enough. He, he actually gifted a, a driver to me um, when we finished the short course as a as a thank you, which was pretty cool. Um, it's got the, you know, it's got the, the coat hanger wire in the back of the grip. It's got, you know, it's 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 the classic Hogan driver. It's not just a, it, it was one of his, it was actually one of his clubs, you know, it was one of his ones he'd, he'd use in rotation. But um, he told me a good story once he, he said he um because he was a he was a mad tinkerer. I mean he he would go. I mean some of the clubs that he had he had counterbalance putters. He had a hybrid. He had metal metal woods back in the sixties. He was playing around with. Um, he was an innovator. He had cavity back you know irons way before they were on the scene. And sort of ironically, it's almost like he was he was searching for clubs that were easier to use, even though you know that. In his mind, you know, he would never let himself use a cavity bag five iron. You know, it had to be the had to be the most difficult clubs to ever use. Um, but he said, Mike said one day he he bought in. Mike was in the pro shop and he bought in a a wedge that he wanted him to he wanted to try because he would go out on the little nine and kind of play around with these different clubs and and decide whether they were good, bad, or you know, indifferent. And it was like a I don't know it was a, it was a new wedge, but it had no no bounce to it. It was just dead, dead level. And um, he put a grip on it and went into the, um, it went into the the downstairs bar where he would always sit and kind of got down on his, he said, I'd always get down on my, my hands and knees and or get down on my knees and get sort of eye level with him. And he said, you know, Mr. Hogan, I've got the, got the wedge for you. So he grabbed it and he, he went out there and Mike went out to watch him and he sort of hid behind a tree <clears throat> and Hogan sort of grabbed a, a ball kind of stood over it, had a waggle. 
and then and hit like you know two inches behind the ball and just <laughs> lay the divot straight over the ball <laughs> and just kind of look down at the divot kind of looked up grabbed another ball same thing just laid a sod straight over it i think he did it a third time and then just helicoptered the wedge just into the tree line and walked straight into the pro shop and mike wasn't sure what to do so he grabbed um grabbed the wedge and he kind of skulkily walked into the pro shop found mr hogan said oh mr hogan i think i think you might have left your wedge out on the range and he just kind of looked at him you know with those gray eyes and said that ain't my goddamn wedge <laughs> that's great that was a good uh, you uh you ever hit the driver do you ever hit the driver they gave you you play it yeah is it hard to hit yeah it just i mean i it just dives low and right just straight off the club it's it's almost impossible to turn it over it's got to be partly the ball i guess but you know for someone that struggled with a hook it's almost like he created clubs that he couldn't that wouldn't oh, that wouldn't have to hit that shot. So, you know, everyone talks about the swing, but I think he complimented it with creating clubs that were extra stiff, super deep face, no roll and bulge, because so it's almost a straight face. Is it a Ben Hogan? Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was once the company was up and running. Uh-huh. Uh, and it apparently he didn't like the roll and bulge, you know, that you used to have on a persimmon. Cause he he wanted the he wanted to understand where he'd hit the ball. He didn't want it to compensate for, you know, if he'd mishit it and it slices back on the fairway or it draws back. He, That's amazing. He didn't want forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, he didn't want forgiveness. Um, so I, I would have to tee it up extra high and almost sort of come from inside and almost deliberately try and hit a snap hook just to hit it straight. Um, the irons are good. I use the irons quite a bit. Um, I haven't got them, but j- just playing the course I, I used them quite a lot and they were yeah they were like four or five degrees flat quite short so you know i would grab a four iron it would feel like a seven iron or something you know but they were easy easier to hit but uh the woods are really tricky yeah i got uh i got a set of old blades that i used a bunch but before i got them bent they were super flat and it was just i just was laying sod over everything it's uh crazy trying to hit flat clubs it it was so strange it was good for my game because i used to kind of all my clubs were way upright and it probably led to a lot of bad habits so i quite liked every now and then using something that was like you know four degrees flat or five degrees flat it kind of forced me to do you know to make some good moves so your design partner jeff ogilvy he once told me he's like you know mike could make cuts out here if he wanted to uh, on the PGA Tour. And I, I would love to know from your perspective if there was a moment when you knew pro golf wasn't for you and it was time. It was golf architecture was for you. Yeah. I mean, I I kind of was, I guess I was always on, I always kind of wore two hats. So I I loved design. To be truthful, the thought of being a pro golfer never sat that well with me. Just this thought that, you know, one year, you've got a job and the next year you basically got, you're unemployed. Um, you know, just, just the, the insecurities of not knowing. And maybe to my detriment, I had a fallback, you know, a lot of guys, you know, leave school in year 10 or year 11 or whatever, and it's all or nothing. They're just into golf. Whereas I'd, I'd gone to university, I got a degree. I was getting into golf course design. I loved it. So I, I sort of had other options, if you know what I mean. So maybe that didn't, um, I, I wasn't, forced to sort of just go down that path. And then I just found myself for a couple of years, I would constantly sort of be switching hats. You know, I'd have a good tournament. Like I, I had some good success as an amateur. And so, you know, everyone around you would, would sort of just assume that you're going to turn pro and suddenly that would feel a bit more comfortable, but then you'd go through a bad stretch or we won a job, you know, and and I, and I was more involved with the golf course design. Um, probably the clincher was I had a couple of operations on my wrist and that put me out. For, for quite some time and um that kind of made the decision a lot easier it was kind of at that point i'm like yeah i don't i, I don't need to try and do this i think I'm, um, I'm quite happy with uh if if i could make it as a golf course designer i'd be delighted so i was kind of all in on that so i was probably 20 probably about 23 i would say about that time so you, you've been traveling uh the world a ton uh obviously you guys got you're australian you got 
a, a big start in Australia. And uh, since you've kind of, we'll get into a lot of the projects that you're working on. A lot of them are in the United States. Um, what you, you've been traveling, you've seen a lot of courses. Are there any golf courses that you've seen that have really made an impression on you in the recent years? Like that you think about a lot that you hadn't seen before, you know, recent years. Probably, I guess in, in Chicago, because we've been working in Chicago, I hadn't seen Shore Acres before. And, um, I don't, many years ago I got to see Chicago golf, but I'd really not spent much time there. So seeing those two golf courses, I think has left quite a lasting, you know, impact. Um, and then I actually got back to, to the UK. I hadn't been there for 15 years and spent quite a bit of time around the Heathland, which I've, I've always loved, but I'd, I'd, to be honest, I'd forgotten a lot. You know, you think you have a clear you know, memory of, of certain holes and certain courses. And I got to see a bunch of, of new ones that I hadn't seen before. Um, so that, that was, both of those are probably the most memorable in recent times, I would say. Uh, I guess for each, for the Heathlands and then for the, the Chicago Rainers, uh, you know, what, what's one thing that you took away from each, just one specific thing, maybe? Um, I guess at the Heathland, you know, I, I kind of love the, I love the use of the sort of the diagonal um, elements, some of the, particularly some of the ridges, um, say Sunnydale Old, for instance, um, and just the sort of the, the eroded sort of evolved look to a lot of the bunkering um that are just sort of the, the product of of 80 years of evolution they're not they're, they're not they're not clean and crisp they're i kind of love how you know there will be old bunkers that are filled in where the heather's kind of taken over part of it or um i feel like everybody likes that look but it's got to be the hardest thing to do with a new build is have it look old all new bunkers look new yeah yeah it is yeah it's really hard it's really hard. Are there any tricks? Um, I mean, the heather, the, the heather is a helps. You know, it's such an amazing plant. Anything looks good with heather on it. You could put a crappy looking mound, <laughs> a really artificial mound. You throw heather on it, it looks unbelievable. Whereas if you rip the heather off and just put, you know, fescue or something on it, it's not going to look quite so good. Um, yeah, I mean, we we sort of we spend a lot of time looking at the bunkering there. And the ridges and some of those quirkier elements, I guess. And I guess we'll get to it. But one of the courses we're working on that we've just finished actually is very much inspired by the Heathland. And so we we spent a lot of time trying to create that style of bunker, which which was challenging. And it was almost like we would create the bunker and then go back into it again and start sort of caving in some lips and 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 moving the grassing lines and trying to get it an old, an old sort of look as though it has been you know, eroding. And then we had a crew doing a lot of handwork that would kind of pull down lips and um then we would basically seed the whole thing with with a with a native blend on the backside. And then once it grew, we had another go at kind of edging it out. So that that, that that's been kind of an interesting process. I think so it's I think worked quite well, you know. The idea the idea is to build it once. Yep. And then go back into it to continue to almost rough it up right yeah. it would be like if you had a brand new table and you didn't want it to seem new you'd build it and then just kind of distress it pretty much, yeah that's right yeah take take little nicks out of it and kind of rough it up put some sandpaper over it um and you sort of and and then you get another chance to do it again once the once the roughs and things have grown because you might edge in a bit of a lip but then we typically hydroseed over that lip well down the the walls of the bunker, even into the floor, you might have some washouts. So you're sort of chunking. You're, you're taking material from the floor and patching areas, and and then, and then you'll you'll have another crack at okay, where is the lip? Um, you might change the grassing line again. So it, it, it's a iterative sort of process, you know, that needs two or three goes at it. I think to get that look. Whereas something like a sandbelt bunker, you're not doing that. You, you kind of you're creating that flash sand look and the clean edge from the outset, and then you're kind of preserving it, really. In a way, like the sandbelt edge makes it easier when you're, you know, in Australia, because that's what everybody wants, right? Yeah. And it's like, okay, we're doing this, and this is how we know how to do it, versus when you come somewhere, or, you know, you come to the States, for example, 
and you have these different soils, you're you know not necessarily able to do the sand belt look everywhere. It's you know you have to make a decision, and then you have a lot of different uh, variables at, at play. Yeah, I mean the soil, the climate. The grass types really do influence the style of the bunker that that you're able to, you know, that you're able to create. And yeah, I mean, lots of people see the sandbelt bunkering and just think, yeah, you know, that'd be great. Let's do that. And it's like it's just not possible. Sorry, <laughs> you just can't do it. Like, I mean, anytime you're in heavy ground like clay, I mean, it's it's going to be a challenge because you have to. That lip has to be like a sandy soil that holds together and packs tight got to be kind of angular particles that sort of pack in um and and you know if you're in the middle of america that's not something that's readily available um and you and and trying to create it is going to lead to all sorts of problems um through growing and maintenance and uh, and all of that um i will say though that and at some point you'll see photos what the two courses we're doing down in georgia one of them is inspired by the heat flame the other one is inspired by the sandbelt, and we've actually been able to not only build sandbelt bunkers, but cut the edge of the greens to the edge of the bunker, um, which you know, I think a lot of people previously have said, oh, it can't be done outside of Melbourne. Um, but yeah, we've managed to do it there. And I think that people will, you know, people, I think they'll lose their minds when they see that because it's, I can't imagine it's ever been done in America, I would say. Yeah, intentionally at least. Intentionally, yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes I've I've been I've been in a place that like you're you're looking at the bunkers and you're kind of like what, what what were they going for here? <laughs> but it kind of it's kind of uh, sand belty in in a way. But it, I don't think it was intentional sand belt. But uh, what what's the what kind of uh before we move on uh what impression or what thing did you take away from the uh, courses in Chicago Shore Acres and uh, Chicago Golf? Um, well, I, the template thing is, is sort of fascinating because we don't have, there's no such thing really as templates in Australia. So I'd, well, there's a lot Lonsdale links, your, your course. That's right. And yeah, exactly right. Well, which is heavily inspired by the templates and our love for Rainer and McDonald. Yeah. But, and, and that was really part of the pitch to the club. They wanted, they wanted a point of difference down there. They wanted something completely different to everything else that was being built. And it was only the course could never be really long. It was it was sort of I think it's like sixty three hundred yards, would say. Um, and we we talked a bit about this template idea and doing something really different, a lot of you know straight mowing lines and and obviously the template greens, and they were all in, which was great. But um, yeah, I just I found it fascinating. You know, I'd I'd read a lot about it, and you know, McDonald going back to St Andrews, and you know, when Chicago Golf Club was originally or National Golf Link, sorry, and, and Chicago Golf Club, were built. And, um, yeah, I, I think I just found that the concept fascinating. And um, so, yeah, so, so being able to, to see a lot of those templates and play them was, was um, yeah, was a highlight. Yeah, those courses are so different. I I haven't been to um, the Sandbelt, obviously, but I imagine, you know, there's, there's similar, um, di- like, uh, kind of, like, courses that are great that are that have similar aspects but are so different from like a what they're built on right like i think everybody is so quick to dismiss chicago golf's ground as bad but i think like the ground for golf like on on the golf side like with the with the way the fairways move with some of the land is actually better than shore acres like the golf ground where like where you're playing but then everything with Shore Acres on the outsides and like those ravines that cut across are so dramatic and they influence, you know, the golf. But like if you hit the ball in the fairway at Shore Acres, it's like a, a runway, you know, it's like every fairway is like a, a you're hitting from a driving range. Right. But there's so much interest in the land on the outside. And then, you know, in Ch- at Chicago Golf, like. People say it's flat, but it's like the first fairway. If you don't hit like a a hard cut up the right edge, you're not holding the first fairway. It's going to roll into the left rough, right? It it moves. Yeah, and I was impressed with how much ground game option, not just options, but how it rewarded you know so so much ground game play at Chicago Golf. I, I was not necessarily expecting that. 
Um, you know, a lot of those very subtle sort of hollows just in fronts of greens, particularly when the pins were at the front, really forced you to kind of figure out what to do. You know, I was constantly trying to land my ball 20 yards or 30 yards short. Um, so, and that is kind of similar to the sand belt, which, which does reward, you know, some landing the ball short and actually sort of bouncing and running a ball in. So there were some parallels, I guess, between those two. Yeah. There's a lot of things that are, uh, that should be, you know, put on a pedestal from Chicago golf and insure acres. But I think both of their agronomy teams are just unbelievable. I, like Craig Smith at Chicago golf has that place. Just, I mean, it, it plays, it's bouncier than some links courses if you catch it on the right day. Right. And, and it's just unbelievable to do that in, in Chicago. Um, so last time we talked you, you'd very little work in the U S um, now I think you're pretty busy. You're you probably do you spend more time in the U.S. than than uh, Australia at this point? Well, the the critical number is 183, and that is, if if you spend more than 183 days in the states, you're taxed as a U.S. resident. So I I've got to keep under that number, um, because it just complicates life. So I think this year is going to be like 175, something like that. So, I mean, to be honest, half our business is in is in the States these days. And it just, it really did. It's amazing how things happen. Um, and I, really through COVID, which seems ridiculous, in, in an industry, in a niche industry like golf, or more so golf course design, you would think that would be one of the first things to, to be thrown out, you know, with a global pandemic. But it, it just kind of exponentially... Um, went up, you know, from really from the time we finished Shady Oaks, and then it just kind of things just happened in really quick succession. Um, so now, yeah, we've we've sort of got five or six projects in North America and Canada. Um, to you know, we, we were building two this year, or three really, and then another, at least another two next year, and then probably another two the following year. So. Unbelievable. What's uh, what's been the most surprising, or like the thing that you you know it, that about working in the states that you didn't it, really expect or you weren't prepared for. I mean, we we're pretty. It's fairly similar to Australia. The, the the one difference is that we in Australia we're kind of more of a turnkey, so we have a number of shapers and a number of staff. So that like the two projects we've just started here, uh, which are both sandbelt sandbelt courses. Um, you know, we'll have four or five people on each project, and we kind of do basically do everything. Whereas it's just not practical in America. We can we've got one of our shapers um, has a, a visa, and we've also got a US shaper who's based out of Denver. So um, what typically happens is we have one shaper on a project, and they work in with a large contractor. Um, so the and, and look, that's you know, it's not that we're not that unfamiliar with that way of working. Probably the shock has been just the speed. That we've had to work so at medina i mean it was, a, it was an intense six months you know we started in early april we finished basically on this trip so i just got home two days ago or three days ago that was my last visit and um you know we built like 25 or 26 greens in a in 24 weeks <laughs> a green a week green a week yeah so That's... it was just yeah so there's no time really to you know, I love nothing more than once you've roughed something in, being having the ability to go back to the hotel and think about it and stew on it, and then you get back in the morning and uh, maybe we'll tweak this or move that or move that. But beyond maybe one night's sleep, that was about it. That was that was the limit to what you could stew over something. You know, you just you just have to keep moving. So you know, that's that's a hard thing too with just getting busy, right? Is like you'd love to have like the the single project where all you think about is one thing, but it's not a reality in life, right? You have life aspects, but then also, you know, you you guys as architects do a lot of other stuff other than just build the golf holes, right? <laughs> like I imagine everybody's dream as a golf architect would be like, I just go worry about the golf holes. Yeah. And I just it's unrealistic. That's right. It sounds great that, you know, we just want to work on one project at a time. But the reality is to work on one project at a time, you've got to be pitching for three other projects. And then you've got to have one or two in design. And then the projects that you've finished, you've still got to keep visiting. Um, so, you, you know, you, you need a pipeline of, of work coming in 
you still got to look after clients. You finish, so it's just not, you just can't, you don't have that ability. And to be honest, that's why I've always struggled with, like when I'm on site, I just find you're so busy in between working with your shapers. You got to see other contractors. You got to catch up with the superintendent. You got to, you know, invariably you got meetings with the club. You sort of bouncy. You're pinging around all, all day, and they're long days. You know, they start at six thirty or seven. You're there till you know five or six at night, and then what happens is when I'm traveling, then the emails start in on Australian time. So then you just your, your inbox is full by the time you go to bed. Then you get up, and there's another twenty. And then you haven't got time. You're up so early. You're up at like five and it's like, I got an hour to kind of sort through a handful of emails. And then it just, and then you get bombarded again at the tail end of the next day. So it's, it's really busy. And I, I always, I'm, I'm amazed at some of the architects who are still able to sit on machines as well. And I think, God, I don't know. How do you do that? You'd almost have to like turn off your phone and just like, <laughs> no one bother me. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm shaping for the day. I've I've never I've never as much as I loved the idea of it and have tried at different times to spend time on equipment I just find too many things get in the way and my time's better spent bouncing between you know the guys who spend their lives on machines and are, are going to be much better at it than me um yeah so I I'm always remarked when I see pictures of Gil you know he'll be on a dozer somewhere doing something and I I just think gosh I mean, he's the busiest man in golf, and I just think, how do you have time to do that as well? He he is without a doubt the busiest man in golf. I like, I don't understand how he could even like keep in communication with everybody. Like that's like just just one thing, one aspect of his life. I don't know how he does. Um, I, had, I had a rumor last year that he spent two days in his own bed. I, I want to say. I mean, that makes sense. Which doesn't surprise me when you see you know, where he is and his travel schedule. It's just like, I mean, this year I couldn't, I honestly, I couldn't sustain like this year and next year are both pretty much the same. And, you know, when I've come home, like the last three trips, I've been home for like eight days, three of which I have to go to the other side of the country to Perth because we've got a project there. So I'm home for like three or four Tearing days. Up? Uh, Mount Lawley, Mount okay. Lawley. Yeah. Uh, but we still work at Karen Yup. Oh, Karen Up. But, um, yeah, I, I couldn't sustain that pace for like, you know, a decade or anything like that. I'd be, I'd be in a fetal position somewhere in the corner of the room. So <laughs> I, I listened to this podcast years ago. Uh, it, it's an incredible pod. It was with Jim Collins, um, who's like written a lot of like business books. Um, um, in, and it was on Tim Ferriss, uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast. And this guy, this guy's figured out. So he's uh, he's written a ton of great books and he's figured out that like he says no to any interview. He says basically like this is like the reason the interview was so great is because he's never on interviews. He's, he never speaks at conventions. And the thing he does is he tracks the exact number of hours he spends on creative work a year. And he and he he has this theory and it makes sense that like why musicians get worse over time or artists get worse over time is that the distractions and demands on their time take away from the creative time they used to spend when they were great. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, a great point. So so this guy he tracks every hour for the year and like his barrier of success on the year is is like very like tied to his creative hours that he spends i like personally i think it's an amazing idea i know i'm not capable of doing this but it's something i think about all the time is like you know it, it he does all these other crazy everybody should listen to this podcast it, just for the the idea of thinking about how this guy lives but it's a it's a fascinating thing i think about because like one of the thing you are in a creative space, and one of the hardest things about anything in a creative space is the more popular you get, the less creative time you have. Well, that's well, that's why recording artists bring out greatest hits albums, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and it's the same with architects. It's very easy to pull out tricks or whole designs or green designs or things that have worked in the past 
you know worked and just kind of adjust them to the starting question you know the hardest thing i remember tom talking about it years ago that you know quite often he said it's not the first course that's the hardest it's the second one and and you do you spend your life you know with your first course i remember the first course i was lucky enough to get the opportunity to to build you know you had 10 Which years course was it that was the hillsville course oh i always wanted to see that one yeah it's um, i'm gonna see it the next the the first time that i'm in australia <laughs> yeah i haven't been back there for a while i sort of struggle to go in the gate these days just because i feel like i'm gonna be you know <laughs> disappointed <laughs> but um yeah it's um yeah, because you have, you know, five or 10 years, you have all these ideas in your head and, and you just can't wait to just kind of, you know, put them on the ground. And, I, yeah, I was like 26 or 27 when that project started and, yeah, it was a, such a great opportunity. I actually walked it with Tom. Tom came and had a look um, on one of his trips to the stage, which was pretty cool. That's uh, That's great. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Club TFE. For those that are unaware, uh, we have a whole membership for people, you know, right now for people that really love golf architecture. Uh, there's a ton of content centered around golf architecture and club TFE. Uh, we are putting out, you know, probably about two to three pieces of real in-depth golf architecture content a week. One of which is a, is called the design notebook that Garrett Morrison, uh, kind of heads up. I contribute there as well as other members of our team. And then the other thing is through our course profiles that come out once a week. So uh, if you're interested in more content, the Club TFE does that really well, as well as early access to our events. Uh, we're just finishing up when this podcast comes out from our uh, first ever member guest, our Club TFE member guest that was out at Meadow Club in um, in Fairfax, California. So we're going to have some member-only events on top of our you know, public events that anybody can come experience, as well as the additional golf architecture and golf content through there and many other benefits. If you're interested in joining Club TFE and supporting uh, what we do here, uh, visit thefriedag.com slash membership, and it is $120 for the entire year. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. And now back to Mike Cocking. Hey, did you watch uh, any of the Ryder Cup? I was, no. So I, I was in the States. I was in Chicago and um, I didn't have any sort of access to basically to TV. So I was just looking at social media highlights, really. That's all I got. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm just curious, obviously, with uh, with Medina, that's the next, uh, I guess it's the next American President's Cup course, right? Yeah. Because they go to Montreal and then they're in Medina. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. So next American uh, President's Cup course is Medina. Yep. Were there things that you were thinking about in the design phase with the team with a team match play event in mind or not? Yeah, there are certain shots out there that I mean, because we weren't sort of deliberately trying to make it a match play course, so to speak, right. because because of- like there's other intentions of the golf course, right? But exactly right. Yeah. Um, but there are certainly some shots where, you know, controversially, we well, it may be controversial, um, we reintroduced a, a boundary fence there, which I think is really cool, um, which is sort of a throwback to some old photos of the in the 1920s and 30s that showed kind of a boundary fence along the near the fifth green, which is the par five. Um, and we... Sorry to go down a rabbit hole here, but so, so with, with with five, six, and the old tenth, there was an opportunity to move those holes inward and away from the boundary, which meant we could revegetate the boundary line. Why? So why would you do that? Just well, it's, it was a really ugly view that that corner of the course, which is kind of the flattest and doesn't really have any endearing sort of features. It's a really bad fence, too. I mean. You've got the holes to give people that haven't been there. One of the holes had like the like like a a uh just a chain link fence that had like a almost like that tennis you know like the tennis uh screen that you'd put up the like green tennis screen that like kind of obscures you being able to look in. Yeah, that's exactly that's right. And it was shocking the first time we saw it. I mean, it goes for like seven hundred yards. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the fifth is fine, but it's the sixth and then the, the old tenth, which is the new seventh. And, you know, so you've got the holes around the lake, which have their own character, and the holes through the trees, you know, through the big oaks in the middle of the property, which have their own feel. But then you get into that top corner and it's flat. There's really no nice trees there. They're all they were all sort of introduced. And then you got the road. So we thought, A, we've got to move the holes away from the road from a ideally from a safety point of view, but but B, it meant that we could revegetate the boundary and try and screen the cars and the you know power lines and things. But then we thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to reintroduce the idea of a fence as a strategic hazard? And so we we incorporated a split rail fence that runs gun barrel straight down five, kind of curves around the fifth green, down the sixth, and then down seven. Um, and to get back to your original question, um, the, the gap between the, the fence and sort of some of the fairway bunkering is is sort of of a distance where I think like in the four ball event of match play, you know you're going to get one person hitting a driver trying to get the advantage of a much shorter shot um, and probably someone laying up. And, and it happens... There's a bunch of holes there, you know, the short par four sixteenth as well. And if you're on if you're on the wrong side of the fence, it's out of bounds? It's out of bounds, yeah. So you've effectively moved what was the out of bounds line inside the property. Yeah. So I mean, some people have talked about it as an internal out of bounds. It's not really an internal out of bounds. You're just moving the property line. It just moved the property line. It looks very cool. And it's an old rustic split rail fence. Uh, on the other side of its long, longish fescue, um, and you just get this—it's such a cool look. I think when you get that sort of linear, dead straight fairway mowing line, you know, it's all in front of you. It's very obvious what you have to do, but we've given, you know, this fifty yards of fairway. If if you lay up to a certain spot, you know, it's quite wide. You don't have to hit it next to the fence, but if you hit away from it, it's the shot to the greens blind, and it's a not a very good angle. So it's a yeah, really interesting strategic, I think, concept. Um, but yeah, back to your point. So there are there's quite a few holes where there is a narrow, there's a neck between whether it's water, whether it's fence, where we did kind of think, well, this will work really, this will be interesting in the match play because um, you know you're going to get one person, in the four ball anyway, you're going to get one person, you know, trying to hit a driver and and get a big advantage. And as in the in the finish to a to a match too. If someone's two down, you know they're going to be hitting that sort of shot just to because it gives them such an advantage over you know laying up. So. Yeah, the I think the thing we also saw, especially this year at Liverpool with the with the Open, is just how much of a deterrent out of bounds is. I mean, I don't think there's any, and, and I think this is obvious. It's the the stiffest real penalty in golf, right? Water. Water hazard, you still feel like, oh, I can make par, right? I can I can hit it in the water if it's a par five, and I'll, I'll go four and two, and worst case, I'm dropping up by the green. I'll get up and down for five, right? Um, without a bounds, it's, you know, you hit it out of bounds, it's devastating. Yeah, every golfer has experienced this feeling, right? And we saw it play out in the open at, at Liverpool with the, in, they obviously had a few places without bounds, the the third hole most notably. It's like these guys were hitting like chunks off the tee, you yeah. know, just doing everything in their power to not go anywhere near the out of bounds. And that's, to me, I, you know, I asked Zach Blair, uh, you know, what, what would you how would you design a course for the pros? He's like out of bounds of water everywhere. Like it's the only way to get these and and it's a fascinating idea. How close is this this fence to like greens and and where you want to go? Uh well the 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 controversial aspect is going to be six because it runs down the so the mowing line of the fairway is four feet from the edge of the fence. We we it might even be it might be five feet because I just we were worried about someone being on the fairway and the fence being in their backswing. So it's we've covered that off. So it's just just far enough away that you're not. You don't get relief from the fence either. <laughs> but the green is the same distance. So the green edge is like three feet from the fence on six. So it was very much inspired by one at well the true first at Royal Liverpool at Hoylake. Yes. It's the same, and I played the British amateur there in like. 2001 maybe 2000 or 2001 one of them 
I mean, that, is, that was such an unbelievable because that was the proper order. And I remember hitting like, it was like a three iron off the first tee. You got out of bounds all the way down there, down the right. You're as nervous as hell. <laughs> like hitting this sort of like punchy sort of three iron down the fairway, short of the corner. And then I've got like 220 yards across a diagonal out of bounds to that green right on the edge of the the burn. It's like, it, <laughs> so it staggers me when people, you know, whinge or complain about the idea of an out of bounds fence. So that hole's been like that for 150 years and it works great. Well, I mean, they got and they got rid of the par three with the OB right along it too. That was a re- that was a really good par three too. I, I thought it was it was interesting. Did you play that? Did you play that hole? Yeah, I played that hole. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I played. Yeah, so it was it was all intact back then. But uh, it was a very cool course. I loved that course. And what was interesting to me, I liked it because it's a very it's quite a flat course. And I and it, I thought that the copses, the out of bounds, were clever because on a flat course, you've only got to raise the ground by two or three feet, and it's quite a visual hazard. So, mm-hmm. so it was you know it was it really came into view on on quite a number. It was a really clever hazard on fairly flattish ground. I thought. What well, was one for the memory bank, you know? So, what's the fascination around rerouting courses for these match play competitions? Do not know. I like, find it. I, I mean, for the most part, I, I just like, I think it's crazy also because for the most part, like, aren't most 18th holes like just means to an end? You have to get back to the clubhouse. And we reroute these courses so that 18th hole is in play. And it's like, Half the time, the matches get there anyways, and it's great. Are they planning to reroute Medina? And do you think that's a big... Do you think rerouting golf courses is a mistake in general? I mean, we just talked about the Open that rerouted. I can't comment on Medina. But if you think back to a lot of these events, um, they've been on rerouted courses. It happens regularly. I guess my frustration with... So and and it's been like I think Royal Melbourne here for various events played like a different layout like five or six times in a row. The the one and sometimes it works really well. The one the cautionary sort of comment is that you know when when you go routing a golf course and you know you're putting a, a lot of thought into the cadence of the holes and how the the flow of it's not just the individual design of each hole. It's how it works from one to 18, you know, like a song or like an album or whatever, you know, whether it's an easy start and a difficult middle stretch. Um, Kingston Heath's a really interesting one. Like the first six holes there uh, a sort of like m- medium difficulty, I would say. The next six is where you make your round and the last six you're desperately trying to hold on. And when you do start to reroute, and renumber holes, you kind of you lose that, um, lose that aspect. And I guess in match play events, it's less of an issue because you're not necessarily looking at that. It's more about the, you know, the, the match play aspect. But certainly in stroke play events, I always, I always think, you know, you you, you run the risk of of losing that that flow. Um, with the with Medina, obviously, it's it's been a club that their identity is rooted in championship golf and in big time championship golf. And I think obviously. If you look at the history of Medina uh, over the years, changes have all been predicated on on that. Uh, you guys are coming in there, and I think like it seems like the idea is to make it more enjoyable for member play um, while retaining that ability to challenge the best players in the world. What are the the themes that you guys are using to do that um, or attempt to do that, you know? A lot more short grass. I was surprised how little short grass there was on a on a course that stretched over three hundred and fifty acres. There were twenty four acres of short grass, and to put that in perspective, there is a hole at Mammoth Dunes that has twenty acres just on that one hole. <laughs> so you seven? could so seven. <laughs> and now it's really wide, but it also does sort of point to the fact it was very narrow. So. And it was just a bit out of scale because the corridors, some of the corridors, you know, had a bit of width, but then you had this really skinny ribbon of fairway. So, and clearly, you know, in tournament golf, Justin Thomas and and guys like that were still capable of shooting way under, but it was an incredibly difficult course for the average golfer. Um, A lot of golf played from the rough. 
So we, we've added, we've doubled the amount of short grass. There'd at least be 50 acres now of um, of short grass. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's it's a lot wider for the tool play. I mean, it's some of those instances are wider back towards the T or linking it back towards the the, the T itself, you know, and, and, and wider in the areas where the average golfer are going to hit their ball. Um, so that's one aspect. A lot of the bunkering previously was sort of, at a set distance from the tee, you know, because that was where the tool player hit it. Um, and it was quite often on ground, not really suited to bunkering. So it was on sort of the flat ground, whereas we, we've probably come back to to building the hazards more where they fit the landscape, which has created a more scattered sort of length off the tee. Um, some of those are, are really short, um, which I think is interesting for the average golfer. And some of them are at a length that's probably more consistent with the length that the tool players are hitting it now as opposed to sort of 20 years ago. I think one of the beauty of random hazards is that, guy, you know, what's what's the right distance today in five or 10 years isn't the right distance. And if you create random bunker schemes and random bunker distances, uh, then all of a sudden you're a lot more protected against distance gains. If, if every bunker is at 300 or 310 yards, and then there's a rollback. All those bunkers are, you know, then kind of at wrong distances for the back tees, right? Um, That's right. One, and also it's kind of nonsense that, you know, why, why should only good players have the thrill of trying to drive yes. it over a bunker? You know, if you're, you know, if you hit the ball 180 yards, shouldn't at some point in the round you 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 have to stand there and actually decide, huh, you know, do I want to try and hit it over that bunker <laughs> or do I play way away from it? Um. That is, though, one of the good things when you do get a water hazard, like whether it's a creek or if you have the ability to run a water hazard on an angle, you know that that is a hazard that everyone has to deal with because it's not, you know, a bunker or a bunker complex. You're kind of limited to 30 or 40 yards, you know, unless you have a big, long string of them. Um, whereas suddenly, the you know, so the out of bounds on 5, 6, and 7, the water hazard on new 16 doesn't matter how far you hit it you have to you have to decide how much of it to take on hey i a question that just popped in my head when you were when you were talking um you you've now spent a ton of time in america what what do you think americans get wrong with golf that australians get right and what do you think uh is something that americans you know american golf does well that australian golf doesn't do as well I think well, the mowing lines is the easy one to talk about. Probably, um, you know, in Australia, fairway bunkers have the fairway cut all the way up to the edge of the hazard. So, which is you know the the ultimate in sort of I guess risk reward is that if if it's a well designed hole with a, a well angled green, you know you you're giving an advantage to someone who can play right next to that hazard with the best line or the shorter shot. Um, Whereas suddenly, if in America you often see that fairway hazard is um, ten yards into the rough or five yards into the rough, or there's a big collar of rough between the hazard and the, and the, and the, the fairway itself, which just kind of dilutes the, the the purpose of the hazard. You know, it's not it's not functioning the way it should. People people then can finish in the band of rough between the hazard itself and the fairway, which is which is not really um, not not the way we like to see golf holes arranged now sometimes it's not always possible depending on the grass types and things sometimes you still have to have a little band of of rough depending on the grass types and things like that and, and at medina there is a very skinny band but it's only sort of two feet and it's mm-hmm. it's it's mown rough so the ball should still you know bounce into the hazard itself so i would say that's the easy one um some of it's a function really of 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 climate and soil types but um Firm playing surface is is it. We all talk about strategy and interesting holes, but the reality is, you, you, it's very difficult or it's impossible really to build strategic holes if the greens and the green surrounds are soft. So, and and, and it's something that's fairly easy to achieve in on the sand belt is is firmness. Um, I mean, we talked a bit about it before with Chicago golf, and it's not like there aren't places in America that have firm greens and firm green surrounds, but. Um, I think most people, most Americans get a shock when they come to the sandbelt and see that their preconceived ideas of firm and then there's like sandbelt firm and then, you know, it's like a tabletop. So when you're building 36 holes at the same place, obviously you talked about uh, this, it's the fall line in Georgia, 
I don't know if you're allowed to say that. I said it. Um, <clears throat> the um, so you built eighteen sand sandbelt style, eighteen and Heathland style. What other things are you trying to do to differentiate two of your own designs in the same place? Like, is that hard to build thirty six holes at once? It, it it is, but I think actually it's been it's it's creatively sort of freeing because we've deliberately dialed into all in on so everything from the way the mowing lines are um you know and a lot of the heathland courses rather than the fairway sort of coming back towards the tee you'll often find that the angle of the fairway it'll it'll be on sort of a slight diagonal at the start of the fairway you know ridges the style of the bunker the style of the greens i mean one of the things one of our big takeaways was you know somewhere like walton heath the greens really are they are on the ground they are just an extension of the fairway little in the way whereas the sand belt or all, all the greens are up they've all been sort of built up the contours of the greens so it's when we made the decision to go down the path of two different style courses um we've kind of really gone all in on it so and that'll be reflected in even things like you know course furniture and stuff like that um so so we want a very different experience on one course versus the other to the point where it'd be nice if um people weren't sure that the same firm had done both courses, you know, because it's a, it's not normal, you know, most 36 hole courses or 54 hole courses these days, they go to different architects. Um, but it just, by the, by the way the project evolved, we were fortunate enough that that didn't happen. So, um, yeah. So it's really with everything. It's, it's with the, the blend of grasses, the grass types, the style of the greens, the style of the bunkers, mowing light, you know, you name it. So, but I, yeah, I think because it is pretty hard if you're designing 36 holes at some point, like you sort of get a bit of fatigue towards the end. It would be very easy to go, oh, I guess we just make this one a little bit like the fifth of the other hole or the other course or, you know, like you're trying to come up with 36 different ideas if it's all in the same style is challenging. But suddenly if you're doing two completely different style courses, it becomes a little bit easier. Do you think it would have been easier to take three years off and come back? Or is it easier to do it all at once? It would be... I mean, like, the chances of you getting another opportunity to build 36 holes at the same facility at once is probably, like... Yeah, probably. One in a million. <laughs> well, I think from a from a developer's point of view, it's impractical because they want to make use of the time on site and the contractors and, you know, the cost of building. They just want to roll through and do it all. But from a creative point of view, it would be wonderful to be able to go, well, I'm going to do one course and then I'm going to think about it for three years and then I'm going to do the other. That would be that would be the ideal, but I can't see anyone agreeing to that. What um what do you have any crazy ideas, anything that you want to try that you'd be willing to share? Yeah, I well, I'm still determined to do the one that I spoke to you about a while ago. And so I think if you had a new site on flattish ground and the idea was to recontour it i think the problem most architects have is that they'll route the course and then do the bulk grading based on the routing and whilst they might incorporate the odd little quirk the, the grading is very, like if you looked at a contour plan of some of these courses and switched off all of the mowing lines i think you could i think a non-architect could probably work out the whole corridors based on the grading if that makes does that make sense yeah uh -huh. because of you know there'll be like mounding between holes or like even if it's not a that sort of course even if it's a really naturalistic course you can usually see where the holes kind of move and i always thought it would be more interesting to regrade the site without any preconceived notion of where the holes go and then do the routing because i think you would end up with much more interesting holes you know, you might have some blind seconds or a blind path three or like, you you, you know, I, I think it has the potential to be a more interesting layout than going the other way. I think I've thought about this idea a ton. And I think that you need to have the person who's doing the grading work has to be like a, on their own, you know, out there. So the idea in kind of layman's terms is having somebody you know, golf courses get built and there's stuff that gets built on the edges of holes and gets built all over the place. The idea would be build all that stuff and then do the routing. Yeah. 
Well, because you, so many of the really interesting holes that are that are memorable are a result of an interesting landform or or how they've decided to lay the hole out over that. Like the, is it eleven at Shoreacres? Yeah. Crazy path forward the drop. There's no way that, you know, I mean, I mean that it's such an interesting hole, and I just think no one would create that hole on a flat piece of ground if they were forced to, you know come up with that idea it's sort of a function of i mean they obviously moved a lot of dirt but it's sort of a function of that particular piece of ground if that makes sense yeah i just was at pinehurst number 10 uh a new tom doke course and they have a hole the eighth hole there that everybody's going to be talking about and it's the hole sits in old mining spoils so there's yeah. just these giant mounds everywhere and you know they you tee off over a mound and then you go down into it and the fairways, like they had to do some work on the mounds were too severe for golf, but they just softened them enough where there's this cool center line. And if if your ball goes right, you get a perfect shot into the green and you you took the most blind shot off the tee. But if you play left, then you're blind into the green and it's just all these choppy mounds and you look to the right and left of it and you see how it was just, this is what was here. This is the mining spoils. Obviously, it was softened a little bit, but it's like that idea, right? It was just a giant mess that they inherited and they built this hole. And I think like you're going to see so many pictures of that hole. But what's cool is the idea of this was a complete, you know, yeah, a lot of people would have looked at that and been like, you know what? There's nothing there. But they worked on it and, you know, and it doesn't. I like the weird, you know, I think the thing that's going to be hard is like it doesn't necessarily fit in with the rest of the course, right? There's some features that they have added around to try and, you know, blend it in a little bit more, but it's just this one little pocket of mining, right? On this property. But it's like, what if that was everywhere? And I guess that's Stream Song, right? Stream Song, yeah, that's right. And I just think, you know, because you, you all, everyone has their own biases. And uh, so we often, you know, you look to the land for inspiration. So when you're given a really interesting bit of land, it's something that's just completely different. That's, I think that's when you get the gems where you you come up with some idea that's because you're always trying to build a hole, a unique hole, because there's only so many holes. I mean, they're all, you know, it's only so many ways you can do it. So when you do come up with a unique idea, it's it's like bunker on the inside green that opens the bunker. <laughs> the green either left to right, right to left, tilt it back, forward, sideways. You know how many times can you do it? So that's why when you see a hole like eleven at Shore Acres, you remember it because you're like it is different to anything else I've ever seen. I've never seen a hole like that, and you remember it. And so I think that's why when you get interesting bits of ground, that's when you start. You know, you may find three or four holes that are just totally unique. Um, and I just think when you're if you're forced to go the other way, it won't be as interesting and as unique as yeah as as if you're given the land. If someone goes and it's like you need a grading, <laughs> like a with winemakers, there'll be a person that looks after the vineyard, and then there's the winemaker. It's almost like you need that relationship. You need a grading person, <laughs> someone to go and regrade the ground who has no preconceived notion of where the holes are going, and then the architect comes in and then they route the course. Yeah, and they can't communicate ever with each other. No, no, he just knows, the person grading the ground knows roughly what makes interesting golf, what looks like interesting golf, and they just come up with a really interesting landscape, and then they give it to the architect, and they should work hand in hand. That's a, it's like a new... <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's the thing, too, is like, I was at, at you know, Piner's 10 last week, and a bunch of dirt had been dropped to build the tee, you know? And it hadn't been moved. Nothing had been moved. It just was dropped there, right? And it was like rough tracked in. And I was standing on it and I was like, you know what? This would be a cool green. Because it just was like kind of like wavy and like nothing had been roughed in. It's going to be built into a T. But that's the idea, right? And like you think about the like amazing fairway contours at the old course, right? Is if you just had a guy just like pushing some dirt around, you'd, you'd approximate that easily. Yeah. But, and that's one of the, I think that's one of creatively why we work the way we do. Because if you were in a, if you were at a drafting table and had to come up with 18 green designs, 
you just it's creatively it's it, it's you're just not going to get as interesting a result as if you're in the field with a shaper and you start dumping sand on the green and exactly like you said halfway through they've pushed some of the sand to the side or whatever and you're like hang on this looks interesting you know it's like whether it's a man on the left or a hollow or just and, and it may be completely different to what you had in mind and then, and then you that might set you on a different path, and then you start refining that, and you, you just end up with much more unique um, designs because the, things are being created that you never would have imagined yourself. It's it's only a result of you know dirt being placed there and pushed around. They're kind of happy accidents, really. Yeah, um, it's not it's not like you're sitting there stewing on an idea. I mean, sometimes they just evolve, and it's like oh. In a way, is it a little bit of a of a case against like very strict routing plans and and like somebody asking? And I'm sure this is a lot of I I imagine a lot of people in golf they're making decisions on golf courses probably skew type A, right? Um, the idea of having a loose plan but having a lot of freedom within the loose plan because you might have something you could be building a par five and be like, you know what? Like this might work better as a par three right to here. Right. Yeah. I think it's, and it depends on the situation. I mean, if it's, if it's a golf course, if it's an existing golf course and there's a particular par three, we'll say that people don't like, and it doesn't work. I think you should be good enough to be able to draw an idea and present it to them and say, well, this is more like what we're thinking. And Given that there's no trees in the way, it's all on the ground, you know, you should be able to have the skills to go, well, I think we're going to build this. And then when it comes time to build it, you still might make tweaks, but it's more or less along those lines. But so that's one example. But the other way is if let's say you've got 2000 acres of forest and you've come up with this routing, well, no matter how good you are, you don't know what it's going to look like when you clear it. Like you've got a fair idea, but there's always a surprise. And so you have to have the ability, I think, to be able to shift away from that, whether it's, it might be moving the hole completely, you know, you know, it might move it 30 or 40 yards, um, or you might uncover a really interesting green site or a landform, or the backdrop was different to the way you thought it was, or maybe there's a really nice feature tree that you want to highlight. There could be a whole range of reasons why. But to get the best result in that situation, you have to have flexibility. Otherwise, if you do a detailed plan and give it to someone, you don't know how many lost opportunities there that have been dozed over by the time you actually get back to see it. So you have to sort of be there and see it evolve. All right, last question. We'll get you out of here. I, I, you've been more than generous with your time, but what's it? What's your favorite part of the process? Is it is it the planning stages? Is it in the dirt, or is it like you're hitting a shot on your your kid that's that's reopened um it's less so that yeah no it's more i really the the first time you see a first time you see a site so you've won the project and it's that first first and second visits where you're exploring the property and you've got a million ideas and you're trying to figure out you know like a mental rolodex you know in your head you're flicking through trying to figure out what's the what's the style of the course what's the feel even before you start looking at the specific holes trying to trying to figure out what's the identity of this place that is a really interesting part of the project and then once you actually get and then and then on the ground when, when you're actually building the holes they're probably my two favorite times when you actually you get into a great rhythm usually not the first hole usually the first hole or the first two you're trying to figure a few things out and you're trying to figure out what's the style and the feel and 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 how is this coming together but once you really get into it um holes start churning out quite quickly and you've you've just got this really good kind of rhythm going um those are my two favorite favorite times and then it's, it is always fun once you get through growing and you you're seeing the course really come alive but actually playing the course is not necessarily it's not like a highlight i wouldn't have said <laughs> so probably a sad moment that's the best it's ever going to look is usually just before it opens. Uh, not always. No, they often get better with time. But um, yeah, I I don't, I, I love the, 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 the former, the creative aspect. I feel like most people would think it's the, it's the, yeah, the, the latter. La the, the end. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I'm sure they do. Yeah. I, no, I'm more interested in the before. All right. People can find you. You're on Twitter. You're on Instagram uh, at OCM Golf. I, I didn't do my uh, homework. I hope that's right. No, no. That's right. We're not, look, we're not super active social media <laughs> users, I've got to say. Oh, you're too busy. You're too busy. You're flying around too much. Yeah. I love social media. But um, yeah, we'll, we, we're, we're trying to be better. We're trying to post a few things. There's a few more Madonna images that are going to come up soon. So um, Listen, yeah. Everybody's always trying to be better. That's the thing, you know? Uh, whether whether you're on there all the time or, or you're never on there, you're trying to be better at it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Mike. We'll we'll make this less than five years before. Uh, yeah, yeah. Next, that would be next, good. Yeah. That would be great. All right. Thanks, Matt. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. Today's episode was edited by Matt Ruches. Thank you, Matt. Obviously, the weather is cooling down. I hope everybody had a warm um, Halloween. I know it probably was pretty cold. It's going to be pretty cold in a lot of parts, but we've got layers. We've got our fall staples, our winter staples in the pro shop. Um, if you want to pick up some merchandise, uh, you know, some warm layers and different things. We've got a bunch in uh, the Fried Egg Pro Shop. Visit proshop.thefriedegg.com um, and you can find all of that there. Thanks, and we will be back later this week with another edition of the Fried Egg Golf Podcast.